0: Welcome to In Search Of, a podcast of the Christian century, where we go in search of voices and perspectives that inform and expand a life of faith. This podcast is inspired by a line from the poet Rainier Maria Rilke. You see, said the poet, I am one who likes to look for things. I'm your host, Amy Frickholm, and like Rilke, I like to look for things. Sometimes, let's be honest, more than I like to find them. In season one of In Search Of, we are exploring saints and sages inner and outer landscapes, and the dynamics of searching and finding. Our guest today is Lori Goodham, a spiritual director and psychotherapist who works from a Jungian perspective. I became interested in her work as I was exploring the life of Mary of Egypt, a fifth century saint who drew me in, in part because of her relationship to the wild woman archetype. But there's so much about archetypes and how archetypal figures become important in our lives that I don't understand and I want to explore. And that's what we do here on In Search Of. So Lori, welcome to In Search Of. Thank you. Let's just assume that we're talking to the uninitiated here. The person to whom you say, I'm really into Carl Jung. And they say, huh? Who was Jung and why are we talking about him right now?
1: Carl Jung was a contemporary of Sigmund Freud but he took a whole different look at the meaning of the unconscious, where Freud tended to reduce it to areas that fit with his understanding of a conscious perspective, Jung took a, a more of a mystical and broader sense of the unconscious. So he looked at, for instance, the interpretation of dreams, which is where they really differed, Freud talked about the id and the ego and the superego. And Jung talked about the self, which is a regulating system of the collective that really invites us into a different kind of relationship with um, ourselves, with what is holy, and with the cosmos. And so we're talking about Jung right now because he is a bridge between the world of psychology and the mystic. In fact, I think Jung was a mystic himself very much in that camp.
0: And how did you become interested in his work?
1: Well, when I was a kid, I was really interested in mythology. And I began noticing, it was about junior high or so, I began noticing that myths of all sorts of different cultures had common themes to them. And so I began to explore that idea. Where did these common themes in mythology, the fact that, that Zeus is the king of the gods in in Greek mythology and in Norse mythology, there's Odin, who's a head of the gods. And in the Egyptian hierarchies of gods and goddesses, there are goddesses in, in the same kind of position as both Odin and Zeus in the more northern mythology. So there are these common themes. So I said to myself, who can tell me about this? Who knows about this that I can talk to? Because I was trying to balance that stuff with my Christianity and the notion of God as Father and as the Trinity of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And How did that fit in with all these other mythologies? Because they were kind of downplayed as not religions, really. And yet I kept finding these profound things in them as I read that were definitely religious experiences and people related to them as their religion. And the more Christocentric perspective was putting them all down. And so I discovered the writings of Carl Jung and began to explore them they were way over my head when I was that age, but they were fascinating enough that I kept after it. And then when I graduated from high school, I said to myself, I think I'm going to go and become a Jungian analyst. <laughs> and so I packed up my bags and headed out to California to go to college and graduate school and, and immersed myself in that world.
0: Were you surprised by what you found there? I mean, having started from this this sort of personal exploration and then moving it into the professional world, what was that transition like?
1: Well, it was more a deepening of my personal connection because one of the things that's really important as you study Jungian psychology is to undergo your own analysis, which teaches you a heck of a lot about who you are and what your shadow side is like, shortcomings, and and so on. And so that was, again, the anchor. And the concepts that came with that being anchored in doing my own work really flowed naturally out of that. And then the, the world, the larger world of psychology itself was intriguing to me in its own right, for all kinds of different reasons. The exploring of what makes people tick and brain chemistry. And I mean, all kinds of stuff like that. I just really loved, loved exploring.
0: So how did the spiritual direction piece come into that for you?
1: Well, I actually retired from being a psychotherapist about a decade ago. I became a religious iconographer. But then a few years ago, it suddenly became obvious to me that I really wanted to be a listener again, that I wanted to attend with the ear in my heart to other people, to people's souls. And in part, that's because for me, the most important thing in the entire world is connecting people with their sense of what's holy. It's really important to me that people find their own personal connection. So you could say I'm a mystic who who wants to teach people how to be mystics, how to engage that relationship with the holy other.
0: Do you feel like you were a mystic from a very young age or was mysticism something that developed over time for you?
1: I think it was from a very young age and I can't tell you why specifically I feel that way, but it just seems like I was always sort of approaching the world with a sense of there being more to it than met the eye.
0: And as far as this religious iconography, how how does that come into the picture?
1: Well, when I was in my teens and 20s, I really loved portraiture. And I found that the portraits always felt to me like a kind of magic and capturing the tiny little muscular differences that make a face particular to a certain person. Like you can change the line around a mouth just a little tiny bit and you've captured the person. But it wasn't answering a deeper need, which was the spiritual need for prayer. And I was looking around for something that would fit and discovered religious iconography. And I was really taken with a couple of different things. One was that in the Russian Orthodox tradition, the way that A person does an icon is a sort of sinking into a quiet space inside and feeling a light that emanates from that deep space so it felt to me like this was the best of all possible worlds because I would try and find in the realm of the imagination and the realm of the spiritual The essence of the saint that I was sitting with, and that would bring me, myself, into a deeper place, a deeper relationship with my own essence. And so, it just felt like it was really an answer to what I needed to do next beyond the portraiture.
0: It's just so fascinating that we're putting these different things together, archetype, the Mm -hmm. saints, the Mm -hmm. individual human personality and the icon. Mm -hmm. And your work covers each of these different things and then brings them together and then pulls them apart and brings them together. Mm -hmm. It's really quite remarkable to me. So let's go back to archetype. What is an archetype? What's a Jungian archetype?
1: An archetype is a term that comes from the Platonic philosophy. So it's an ideal. And it's also a form into which things click, a propensity for things to go a certain direction. The clearest examples are in dreams. Dreams are the avenue for presenting us with the archetypes in their purest form. So say you have a dream that feels fairly important to you one night, and in it there's a bear, and uh, the bear is kind of a cross between a human and an animal and brings you a special gift or a special sense of knowledge or wisdom. And you wake up with that feeling like, oh, wow, you know, that was pretty special. Well, that's being visited by an archetype. It's a a place of wisdom in the soul. And how we talk about it depends on where you're coming from in the spiritual realm, how you talk about it. I don't have any problem myself saying that it's an aspect of God and the way God has of talking to us that's immediate and more multidimensional.
0: So this way that an archetype can be a kind of concentrated symbol.
1: Exactly. And the idea is not to try and pin it down with words, but rather to live in relationship with it.
0: This is where I always get stuck. You no. Know? Okay. I, I come up so mute against the archetype and I work with words all the time. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of my work is with words. And so I feel like I encounter an archetype. Maybe it's in a dream. Maybe it's in myself. Maybe it's out there in the world. And I feel so mute. The process of giving words doesn't feel like quite the right one.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the process of telling the story is probably closer than trying to define that the archetype will always become clearer to someone through a story, but not at all through words.
0: And through explaining or something. Or mm-hmm. we yeah, somebody yeah. telling me once that the word explain means to make flat.
1: Ah, yes.
0: And that seems yes. like the complete opposite of this work of of
1: exactly. archetype. Yeah. I mean, making flat has its place in things like needing to know the precise measurement of something in order to get to the moon, for instance. But when it comes to this realm, not so much.
0: Let's go to archetype and saint. How do you understand the relationship between saint and archetype?
1: Well, I would start by saying that, for me, the saint expresses archetypes in some way that that is what makes them doable as an icon. All an icon means is that you're a window to the realm of the holy. And the clearer the window is, the more people can look at you and through you to this realm of the holy. And so the saint is a clear window. And the archetype embodied by a saint is often in a fairly clear form. St. Francis, for instance, you've got a lot of images of him, his relationships with the creatures and his simple way of praying, the brother, son, and sister moon connections that he had, his generosity and vow of poverty. And that's an archetype for that companionable guide who's a little bit older than you maybe or Spiritually a little bit older than you, who sort of leads you along the path. So you can see from that description how the two relate, how an archetype and a and a saint are in relationship.
0: Do saints have only the light and not no, the shadow? No, heavens
1: no. Okay. There's plenty of shadowy saints. In fact, Mary of Egypt is a perfect example of that.
0: What do you see in her?
1: She's somebody who, as I understand it, came away to the desert from having a life that was pretty robust sexually and that her idea was that she really wanted to dedicate her life to God and so she went into the desert in order to purify herself. And so there was a wildness already in her that had to do with a, a deep passion for life, This this huge passion that, at least in her estimation, she was using wrongly. So she was using other people and came to her senses about that and changed who she was or changed the direction that she was exploring her relationship with God.
0: So there's a wildness that could be out of control, using others, maybe losing direction like a wild wind or something. And Mm -hmm. then there's this other wildness. What kind of words would we give to that?
1: That's a wildness of passion for God, a wildness of just this intensity of longing to be in relationship with God. The shadow side of it is that it's impatient Mm -hmm. and kind of impulsive, yep, and sort of casts people aside if they're not headed in the same direction because the focus is singular. And so she becomes, for us, the image of what it means to have that kind of wildness. It's more than passion. It's more like this energy of chaos put into the service of love.
0: I want to show you the icon that was made for me in Mary of Egypt. And mm. I wonder if you could read it, read it for us. Sure,
1: for yeah. Okay. Maybe, though, I ought to just say the way to sit with an icon, because with an icon, it's really important to be present to it over the longer haul, to have times when you just look at it and there are no words and you don't go to the word place as a sort of escape from what's really going on. Because a lot of times what's really going on is you gaze at an icon is a kind of deeply transformative experience that's below words so that would be my first kind of disclaimer right. yeah. we're just
0: playing a little bit for a minute you are listening to in search of a podcast of the christian century you'll be inspired and informed by the excellent writing and thinking found in the pages of christian century magazine Subscribe with this special offer only for podcast listeners who are also new subscribers. Get a whole year of the century for just nineteen ninety-five. To sign up, go to christiancentury.org slash in search of offer. That's christiancentury.org
1: slash in
0: search of offer.
1: Okay. The first thing you notice about her, interestingly enough, is her eyes and that uh, she's looking. I mean, look how how she's looking, not directly out ahead of her, but kind of to the left and up. But what's she seeing there? And how is that a reflection of who she is? She's leaning forward a little bit in a posture of supplication and her hands are out in that way. So she's she's in prayer, it seems like, even as she's standing there. She's obviously very thin and almost skeletal and yet has a lot of vibrancy to her. And so you want to say, okay, how does one live into that purity of spirit that takes you away from the physical realm, the realm of the wants and the desires that come through the body? and it gets turned into this relationship with God. But you look down at her feet there, and she's planted on, I wonder what that is. Is that a slippery slope, or is that a, the edge of the desert? It's an area where there are plants, where behind her there's nothing. That's an area of cracked earth, and so it makes me wonder, and I'd like to sit in meditation with what that is that she's standing on, and what that means about our stance. We stand. What else? My heart response to her is to want to sing. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but it's just the feeling in my heart of there's a hymn there that uh, wants to come forth. And so as I open my heart to her, I find that hymn reaching up to God. And I think. That That's sort of how the icon becomes the window to the holy. Is that the resonance that I feel, with my eyes and with my heart, open me up to that relationship? So I'd have to spend more time with her. But those are the things that strike me at first. Yeah, there's
0: a way that the wild woman is essential. Mm-hmm. You no, know, she's of the essences. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. her body and her age and her bones mm-hmm. speak to this hard center of things,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uncomplicated in a way.
1: Complicated and open. I mean, even the even her rib cage. There's an openness mm-hmm. there, an openness in her stance, an openness in her body.
0: In her hand. It feels like she's praying. She's welcoming something. She's. Mm-hmm. Asking, her eyes are Mm -hmm. so wide in this. Mm -hmm. Eyes are so, Mm -hmm. they're so big.
1: Yeah, it's like there's wonder there, bigness about, about that. Yeah.
0: The other thing, when I think about Mary of Egypt, is the wildness of the intimacy with the landscape Mm -hmm. that becomes possible in the wilderness. It doesn't seem possible in the ordinary world. Mm that understanding of the elements and even the way she eventually is able to conduct the elements. She can walk mm-hmm. on water, she can rise in the air. You know, she has mm-hmm. these powers that I feel like come from intimacy with the wilderness. Yeah. So if you were directing somebody like me with this obsession or strange attachment to Mary of Egypt, how would you go about doing that? How would you lead me through a process of understanding how Mary of Egypt is in relation to my soul?
1: I think I'd start by asking you what most draws you to the story. And you would tell me what particular things about Mary of Egypt draw you. And each of those is a quality that has an aspect of holiness about it. And so I would want to know where that, whatever it is that's drawing you, where is that calling you next? What is the next step? in um, your own relationship with that. So talking about the relationship with the elements that you've just described, I would ask you if there's a way in which you feel cut off from the elements yourself, is there a way that you want to get closer to them? But it's not just that, it's the, the spirit within them, the way in which they are themselves a reflection of wildness. I, I want you to head in that direction of what is it that that draws you in those images of walking on water and mm. lifting up into the air and, and how does that speak to you? What does your heart say? What does your heart want? What is it yearning for?
0: Mm. And I suppose yearning is involved in all of this archetype and saint business. Can you speak to that at all?
1: Yeah, the yearning is where God is longing to meet us. I think that God yearns for us, and that that gets expressed, though, in our yearning, because in my understanding of things, God is at our center. There's a place in us where we are one with God. We don't know it. That's a mysterious chamber within us. And so the archetypes that come in dreams, for instance, come from that place. And they're a way of trying to draw us towards the the center, towards who we most deeply are. Because the more we become who we most deeply are, the better we feel and the more positive we are in the world, the more of an influence to good.
0: I'd love to have you talk a a little bit about the relationship between Jungian psychology and this dream work and and these powerful images and maybe Christianity specifically. And I don't know if I'm asking, do you find that there's a resistance within the Christian tradition in relation to working this way? Or if you could speak to what you found over the years in working as a Jungian psychotherapist coming from a Christian perspective.
1: Well, to begin with, I felt a real tension between my understandings that came through Jungian psychology and my Christian understandings. And it was almost like a sort of schizophrenic, Thing where I'd go over to this left area and there would be the archetypes and I'd go over to this right area and there would be God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. End of story. And it took me a long time to put those together. And yes, to begin with, I felt a pretty big resistance in The Christian community to working with archetypes. I had a dream group for instance where I had an Episcopalian priest who was in it and she just had the hardest time taking that step into the the darkness that goes along with working with archetypes. And it was only when I discovered Celtic Christianity that I found a language that melded the two. And then when I began to learn about being a spiritual director, I went to the Benedictines, and they're all very comfortable, (laughs) very comfortable with that archetypal language and understanding, and they have no trouble at all. So that was a real blessing for me, because it cleared up the last vestiges of that, having to think in two different ways.
0: Am I hearing you say that you think they're There's something perhaps in Protestantism about resisting the shadow
1: side? Yes, absolutely. That's a a really, really good way to put it. I don't think I've ever put it quite that way before, but yes. So when Protestantism began, one of the things that Martin Luther and others wanted to do was remove the images from the church. They loved the music, but they didn't like the images. And considered religious images as a kind of idolatry, in fact. And what that did, I think, was take away the ability to be in the imaginal realm with the images that that are so important to us. And Catholics never had that problem because they get to have all kinds of relationships with the symbols, the visual symbols. So if you have a more linear approach to your spirituality, then that can make you too uh, bogged down in these kind of rational ways of thinking about things.
0: And what is the value to the spiritual life? I can imagine asking, what's the value of going into the shadow? Of what use is that?
1: Oh my goodness. It's essential to go into the shadow, especially nowadays. Our problem not only in this country, but worldwide, is people projecting their shadow on other people. We think these people over there are doing it all wrong and they're terrible people, and they think we're terrible people, and we're fighting with each other. When, if you could just learn about your own shadow, you could reel in some of those projections, a person could, and the world would be so much better off. I think that was true in Jung's time. He, to begin with, really kind of liked some of Hitler's ideas because he felt like the Aryan peoples, the Northern European peoples, had gotten disconnected from their mythology. But then he discovered to his horror what Hitler was doing, inviting people to project their shadows onto other people. You have to look into your darkness. You really have to. It's essential for the Survival of the world.
0: And you were speaking about that Episcopal priest who really resisted that, and I can absolutely resonate. Was there something that finally broke through for her, or some way of seeing that made it easier for her to address that?
1: Yeah, she took baby steps all along in in that area. And I think for her, too, it was realizing the importance of reeling in the shadow projections that made her take these things seriously. And she always had more of a sort of Christian interpretation of the archetypes than I would have. But she did really well at coming to understand what they were for, what they meant in her life.
0: Do yeah. people come to you with these kinds of stories? I mean, is, it, is are they often an entry point? Or do people come to you with maybe hurts? Or what, what are some common entry points? What people come to you with?
1: For spiritual direction, the entry points are more likely to be things like, I feel like I'm I'm dry spiritually, I don't know what to do, all my practices are not working anymore, I feel like my idea of God is too small, I feel like I need something, but I don't know what it is. And that's what we begin to explore. But since I am jungian oriented, we start working with dreams in that process. And that's how the people's favorite saints and favorite stories, too, come up in that context. And then those show us what's being asked for. I think I, I would direct your attention back to Mary of Egypt for a minute. Because I think the other thing that's really important about her and the other Desert Mothers and Fathers is that they were in an era that's a lot like ours is right now, where there was a huge emphasis on the empire building, and Christianity had newly become part of that empire building. And so that whole movement to go out into the desert in Egypt was to counter that, to find a different perspective that could lead more directly to the relationship with the, the holy, with God. And I think that that message is important right now. So I'm delighted that you're pulling out the imagery about her and her life and the kind of wondrous and beautiful things that happened.
0: We had a lot of debates, the iconographer and myself, about how to dress her hmm. because in the desert, she's wearing Zosimus's tattered robe. Mm-hmm. The, the, the monk who mm-hmm. meets her in the desert. She's wearing mm-hmm. his robe. And so we were debating, is she dressed in tatters? And, mm-hmm. and the iconographer wanted me to understand that in the iconographic tradition, you very often put some a beautiful robe on people mm-hmm. to, to honor them.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because uh, it's beyond space and time. So there's a way in which she's in the desert and a way in which she's not, that she is in the realm of heaven. And again, the window opens to the realm of heaven.
0: Right. And I, I think in my Protestant way, I, I got pretty literal. <laughs> <laughs> In my conversations with the iconographer, I was like, "Well, I mean the text says her hair was really short, and that kind of thing where i I wanted literal representation and not that that was wrong, but, it, but there was so much conversation about what's the purpose of the literal mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and how are we working our way between the literal and the metaphoric. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Often when I'm meditating with her, the sky really strikes me where it's this enormous sky. But the main thing that kept coming to me over and over again was this was this yearning mm-hmm. that Mary of Egypt had, this desire mm-hmm. that seemed like it was bigger than the whole world.
1: Mm-hmm. There you go. That's the wild woman right there, a yearning that's bigger than the whole world.
0: Well, Lori, thank you so much. Thanks for uh, sharing your... Jungian work. I'm really grateful for you joining us.
1: You are very welcome. It's a pleasure.
0: This has been a podcast production of The Christian Century, thoughtful, progressive Christian magazine of theology, politics, and culture. Visit us at christiancentury.org slash in search of to find show notes for this episode, to sign up for our weekly newsletter, and to find all the episodes of the podcast. This podcast is produced by Steve Thorngate. Editorial assistance has been provided by Annalisa Burns and Amy Adams. Special thanks to Kyle Peterson for theme music. The Christian Century is an independent, not-for-profit organization that relies on donations and subscriptions to create rich content like this podcast. Have you considered making a donation to The Century? Is your magazine subscription up to date? Visit christiancentury.org to make a donation and subscribe today. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.